Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy and with Ken Campbell. I have to, do, to give a disclaimer right off the bat, okay? We are recording this podcast the morning of Tuesday, November 3rd. The world might be in flames by the time you listen to this. So just so you know, we don't know what happened yet in the election. I think it's important to state that. So we seem really happy and things go, go badly at night. That's why, okay? The election has not been decided as of this time. Boys, let's... Uh, Let's get down to business. A lot of crazy stories in the past week. We, I, I want to start with body checking. And there was a little bit of craziness when the story first came out. It, it appeared to be confirmed that it was already a ruling that there was no body checking in the OHL this year. We know now that it's still in the works. And, you know, my reaction was to fly off the handle and say, this is ridiculous. The science of it makes no sense. But I want to hear what you guys have to say first. Kenny, tell me what you think about this rule. It doesn't make any sense for the sake of COVID-19 safety to be banning body checking in any hockey league. Well, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it does because if you're going to do that, you might as well not play. And, and and I don't mean that by saying, well, if you can't check, you can't play. But I mean, you're gathering together as a team. You're sitting on the bench. You're, you know, you're in close quarters. You're sweating on people. You're, you're. There's incidental contact. You know, you're, you're together in a re- in an arena. So, like to isolate body checking doesn't. I, I don't know that, that it really, like, it's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater almost, I think, um, you know, because to me, if, if, if you're going to go to those lengths, then, then it probably doesn't even make any sense to play because if, if, because if they're going to be in that close quarters together and you're, you're that worried about transmission, it's, it's probably going to be transmitted in, you know, puck battles and, and all those sorts of things as well. So. Yeah, and it just felt very arbitrary that that was the step that Minister Lisa McLeod sort of got, got stuck on. You know, I was talking to some OHL GMs as soon as this, this story broke, and they said, look, if you're going to do anything like, okay, maybe you put full face shields on helmets, uh, you know, like in the, in the college ranks. If, if you're going to take away body checking, just like Ken said, it, it, it's not actually going to help. You know, I mean – body checks themselves are, are very quick and fleeting. If you don't have body checking, you're going to have guys going for the puck next to each other longer. Um, all in all, this feels like something where the government got caught flat-footed and, you know, very soon after Premier Doug Ford came out and said, no, look, we're still looking into this. Because the thing that I got stuck on was, you know, the OHL right now is scheduled to begin its season February 4th. If the NHL gets its way, the NHL will get going in early January. So would the Toronto Maple Leafs and Ottawa Senators not be allowed to hit in Ontario? That would be the rule based on what McLeod was saying. And obviously that would be a non-starter. There, there's a joke in there about the 2019-20 Leafs, eh? I tell you right now, the Leafs don't hit anyways. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, They're literally not allowed to hit. Yeah, it, it's fun. I agree with you guys. And the analogy I can think of is like, picture it's a you know it's a high school dance 
and you're, you know, it's old school. You're the priest with the meter stick telling one meter apart. And you're like, okay, kids, what you can't do is run into each other really fast and crash and fall over, but you can grind, you can slow dance, you can do whatever you want. You can neck in the corner, <laughs> but just don't run into each other really fast and fall down because that's dangerous. That's going to pass the virus. It, it's just ludicrous to me. It's embarrassing. And, you know, we talk about puck battles in the corner, but also even just a scramble in front of the net. Like if you're screening the goalie, you're, you're breathing like really close to each other. And the hitting, like the hitting is the least of the problems. Face-offs are a bigger problem. So I, I wonder if, you know, from the, the standpoint of the Minister of Sport, if it's almost like a situation where you're too afraid to be known as, you know, the government body that stopped hockey. So you're baiting the OHL. You're basically stopping the league by putting that rule in and hoping the OHL just says, oh, we fold for the season. And then it looks like it's the league's decision. That's the kind of thing I'm wondering about. It's sort of like Halloween, you know, you, they didn't ban trick-or-treating. They didn't want to be the ones that shut down the businesses that sell the costume and candy. They just recommended don't do it, hoping that people would just not do it, right? So I think the government's kind of trying to straddle the line and, and anger the fewest people possible with these sort of wishy-washy rulings. I think they're just absolutely ludicrous. Uh, we have to talk about Mitchell Miller some more. It's been a big story over the last week. Ken, you've done a great job covering it on our website. Uh, and since we last spoke, spoke about Mitchell Miller, a lot has happened. So the Coyotes have reversed their decision. They were defending him passionately, saying that he deserves a second chance. Then a couple days later, after the online backlash, he's gone. UND, of course, also drops him, so he's no longer going to play college hockey. So my question for you guys is, how long should this punishment last? And do you think that, that Mitchell Miller deserves a chance in hockey at some point? Or is this just kind of, no, you've made your bet. Uh, Ken, we'll start with you on this one. Well, I, I think I'd like to preface it by saying, you know, there's, there's one victim in all of this. There's only one victim in all of this, and that's Isaiah Mayer Crothers, right? Um, so let's get that out of the way. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm still wrestling with this one. How long does someone have to pay for their sins, and 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 how long does you know how how long does someone have to live with the you know the scarlet letter that that uh, Mitch Miller is going to be living with? I, I mean, it, it's going to be very difficult for him. I, I, I mean, he's he's not going to um, be playing. <laughs> At the University, bless you. Bless he's you. not going to be playing at the University of North Dakota next year. Um, I don't know where he's going to be playing. I, I can't imagine there would be a team that would be, at this point, would be interested in picking him up. Um, you know, I, I mean, he's. This is going to be a long time. It's going to be a long time before he before he um, he he this this situation gets cleared up. I just I just don't see anybody taking him on their team at right now. And, and what does that do for his development? Like he's not going to be able to develop as a player if he has nowhere to play. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of at the point now where it's just, I, 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 I just hope that Mitch Miller comes out the other side um, as a better person, you know, that he gains redemption either some <laughs> somewhere outside of hockey or in hockey and by doing, you know, and, and by gaining redemption, I, I hope he takes the steps that he needs to take to realize that what he did was, was really, really heinous and, and, and quite, quite cruel and evil. Um, and I, I just hope he finds redemption somehow. I, I mean, I, I, I just can't put it in any other way. It's just a bad story all around. I, I just feel terrible about the whole thing. Yeah. I, I don't think you can, you know, you, you can't force a team in North America to, to take him on. And I, I would find it difficult for, an organization to say, okay, well, we've got this kid, like, how's he going to fit in the room? How, how's it going to look for us? 
Um, and you know, like that's, that's just, that's the unfortunate, uh, thing here is that I don't know if he can shake it over here, which is why I'm going to say he's going to play in Russia. That's where they don't really care about this kind of thing. Uh, it might not be this year. Maybe it's next year uh, or maybe just signs with an organization, plays with their junior team for a bit and eventually turns pro. Uh, I think he's going to end up in Russia and uh, you know, maybe he can carve out a, a nice career over there. Uh, we've certainly seen other North Americans, uh, not ones with dubious pasts, but we've seen North Americans go over there and carve out nice careers. I think that's really the only option right now because it's going to take a long, pe- long time for people to forgive this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the warm embrace of Bill Peters awaits in Russia someday for Mitchell Miller. Uh, but I, I'm with you guys, and you know. It's just strange because there are two paths that, that Miller could take, and it could be the path that, like you said, redemption can, and, and learning from this, maybe becoming an advocate for anti-racism, anti-bullying, et cetera. Or the other path is to turn this into a situation where he's, he's t- painting himself as the victim and this ruined my life. And so far, the communication from the family seems to be going that victim route, which is disappointing because, like you said, Ken, Isaiah Meyer Crothers is, is the real victim. Uh, and, you know, and we saw Mitchell Miller's sister was – I think it was an Instagram post saying there's two sides to every story. Well, he was convicted. He confessed. So what's the other side? Like, it, it's not like it was a, he said, she said, did he really do it? Was he wrongfully accused? No, he admits that he did it. So what's the other side of the story? Uh, and, you know, I wonder if just the punishment should be, you know, you're out of hockey forever and consider yourself lucky. If he did this as an adult, the punishment would be worse. You wouldn't be able to get any kind of job. You might go to jail for what you did. So maybe the punishment is, Hey, Congrats, you get to live the rest of your life and you can do anything else, but you've lost this one privilege because of what you did. That's sort of where I stand on it. And, and, you know, it, I think he's in a way lucky that this is all that's going to happen. If he's just going to lose the one thing he loves most, it could be a lot worse. So I still side on, on uh, Isaiah Meyer Crothers' family side, absolutely. Especially because according to his mother, after, you know, Mitchell Miller sent a, a letter to all 31 teams, you know, pleading with them to, to give him a chance, but he didn't apologize to the victim of the crime allegedly so i don't know how do you how do you feel too sympathetic for him if, if that's really the case uh next up there's an interview that ron francis gave this week and he talked about the idea that the flat salary cap could benefit the seattle kraken and, and sort of produce a situation similar to what we saw with vegas where they got all those great deals from desperate teams and they leveraged it and they became a good team really fast. So I'm curious, do you guys agree with that? Cause it's been a sort of a ping pong over the last couple of years between people saying, well, it's not going to be, you know, teams are not going to be able to, or, or Seattle's not going to sneak up this time because everyone saw what happened to Vegas, but now we're seeing the opposite sentiment. Maybe there's going to be an opportunity. So Ryan, you go first and tell me what you believe is going to happen with the Kraken. I, I certainly think Ron Francis and the Kraken are going to have a fantastic draft because of that flat cap. You know, there's a lot of teams that had signed long-term deals with veterans in particular, where they're going to have to get out from under them. And Seattle offers kind of a perfect landing spot for these contracts. Now, are they going to be able to get the first rounders that Vegas did or, or some of the great prospects that Vegas did. I don't know if it'll be at the same caliber um, because teams are a little more savvy. Maybe they say like, okay, we'll give you a second round pick if you take contract X off our hands. But I think, you know, Ron Francis is in a fantastic situation where he can say, okay, 
you know, we've got a clean slate with our salary cap. We can take on one or two bad contracts where the players still have a lot of value on the ice, just maybe not commensurate with that particular amount of time uh, and that amount of money. That's a huge advantage when you're building a program from scratch where you can get some veterans in there, you can get some young kids in there, you get that pool of prospect built up really quickly as Vegas did, and you're off to the races. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a flat cap absolutely benefits the Kraken, no question about it. And, you know, I go back to what George McPhee was saying before the, you know, before Vegas started playing. And he said, the great thing about this is it's a clean slate. We have no bad contracts right now. None. I mean, they have a couple now, but <laughs> a few years later they have some, but they have, you know, I mean, and so they have no bad contracts. There's, it's almost like they have an advantage, like they're starting from zero. And, and I, you know, I mean, as this time around, I mean, I think last time around, I think NHL GMs were trying to kind of pull a fast one to get, to get rid of some contracts they didn't like and it backfired this time. I'm not even, I don't even think it's going to be a case of trying to pull a fast one. It's going to be like absolute and total necessity. So like, I, I would suspect that Seattle might even have more leverage than, than, than Vegas did going into this thing, because there's going to be GMs out there that are like, we can't even start playing because we've got too much, we've got too much salary on the book. So you're going to take it and we'll give you whatever you want. So yeah, I absolutely think that Seattle's positioned itself to be in a really good spot. Maybe not to be as good a team off the hop as Vegas was, but I think, you know, by taking a couple of really bad contracts and getting futures for them, um, you know, down the road, they will have set themselves up themselves up really, really well. Yeah, I'm with you. And you look at this summer, or I always call it summer, off-season. Uh, there are t some teams right now that still aren't even compliant and can't even play. The Islanders in Tampa Bay. So if, if the expansion draft was this year, Tampa would be saying, please take Tyler Johnson. Please, sir. Please take him. We'll give you anything. We'll give you a first-round pick. Like, whatever they want, right? And and I, I think it's going to happen again. I've been pounding this drum for a while. Because, you know, I want to I say this in the least inflammatory way toward the general managers. It's, it's not their fault, per se. It's the market's fault. And what I mean is, they'll never stop making mistakes. GMs will never stop signing bad contracts. It's not because they're dumb. I'm sure there's some dumb ones out there, but it's because the market and the competition, it's what creates the bidding wars, which drive up guys' prices, which artificially inflates the, you know, it's the David Clarkson. David Clarkson is the quintessential example. The Leafs were criticized for signing that deal, but they had to, that was the only way to get it. And those kind of contracts will keep coming. Every time there's an open market with competition, there will always be bad contracts. And there will always be, you know, th that's a UFA, but there's also unforced bad contracts like the Josh Anderson contract. The very fact that that deal exists is a reminder of why I think Seattle's going to have a field day again, because teams are just going to need the help and because of that flat cap even more so than ever. So I think we're in agreement. We're agreeing on everything today. So hopefully we nice. can find something to fight about, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what's next. So, so uh, the league has been given some interviews, so there was a lot done with ESPN recently, sort of discussing various scenarios for planning the start of the next season. It could still be January, it could be February, but one idea that's been tabled is the idea that maybe we're looking at a season of 48 games, maybe a bit longer, but 48 uh, being that the, the it, it wouldn't drop any lower than 48, I believe. But there's an idea that the NHL wants to guarantee that 21-22 season is the season that's real and normal and long, 82 games for the sake of Seattle, because they paid $650 million. They need that revenue. They need that gate revenue. They need, they need everything to be normal in that season. So 
Do you guys believe it's worth sort of punting this coming season? And that means, you know, maybe it's Hub Cities again, maybe it's no fans, whatever it takes to get that season wrapped up by July in the name of coming back strong the next season. Ryan, we'll start with you. I think so. And I think people would understand, you know, I mean, we're still in the midst of this pandemic and, you know, we, we don't know when things are going to stabilize and you don't know when you can get fans in the stands. So if you think about just the, the cost certainty of a shortened season, you know, it's less travel, um, you know, it's, it's less nights that you would have to, to pay arena staff. And, and that's terrible for the arena workers. I, I gathered, you know, and I understand that. Um, but if you're trying to sort of shrink things down to what is financially palatable, then a shortened schedule obviously gets you there. And, you know, obviously division realignment, you know, having a Canadian division is, is something that's been bandied about. So, I mean, that wouldn't be great for travel for those teams, but um, you know, otherwise you're looking at some, some cost certainty, you're still getting a, a pretty good season in there. And, you know, schedule wise, you know, another thing that I've heard is, you know, NBC has the summer Olympics. Uh, they don't want to be broadcasting hockey playoffs at the same time as the summer Olympics. So I'm sure that is a consideration with NHL schedule makers and NHL front office is they want to make sure that there isn't a conflict there because obviously NBC is a, a huge partner for them on the broadcast side. Yeah, to me, it's, it's a matter of like, if you're going to recalibrate at some point, like, you know, I mean, and 20, 21, 22 is as good a time as any, because you've, you've also got the Olympics in 2022, where you're going to have to shut the league down for a couple of weeks as well. Right. So I, at some point, the league's got to get a reset here, right? Like you can't just keep going into August and September and starting up in December, January and, and going like that. Like you, you can't do it with a full season. So to me, it makes sense for this to be the year where you recalibrate, right? Because the losses for this year aren't going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. They're going to be in the billions of dollars this year for the NHL overall when it comes to overall league revenues. Um, so it's almost like, you know, let's just take our medicine. Let's just take our beating now, get it over with, and then start with a fresh slate in 21, 22. Um, you know, I mean, but a lot of this is so out of their control. I mean, I'm still hearing 56 games. I'm still hearing what we talked about last week with a lot of, you know, sort of temporary bubbles. You go in for two weeks, you play eight games, you come out, you go back in for a couple of weeks, you play eight games. It's, it's not going to be ideal. It's going to be a patchwork season anyways. You know, it's almost like, yeah, just, just like, okay, just, just bring it on, pound us with everything right now. And then just let us, you know, let us rise from the Phoenix in 21, 22. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And I think it's even an argument that, you know, I think it adds to the argument that maybe you don't strive to get the fans in the stands. I know the league is, they're really adamant they want fans in the stands at some point in the season, or at least for the playoffs. But maybe, you know, you're still putting everyone more at risk in the short term. I think if you just lock it down and take a big, eat one more big punch from Ivan Drago and then come back strong. I don't know what's the Rocky Four reference. I don't know. But coming back strong next season. The other thing I wonder is, you know, let's say we don't have a vaccine yet by 2021, 22, and it still puts Seattle at risk for losing revenues in that first season. Is there a scenario in which the NHL considers delaying Seattle a year? I know they've said that's not the case, 
But if things are still looking grim a year from now, or not a year from now, it would have to be sooner to make that decision by, you know, the spring or maybe the summer. You'd have to, because the wheels would have to be in motion early. I do wonder if the league considered delaying a year. It will, it will suck as well for, you know, record keeping things like Alex Ovechkin chasing Wayne Gretzky's record. He's going to run out of games a lot sooner in, in his career. So that might actually keep Gretzky's record safe, but what are you going to do, right? Maurice Richard didn't get to play 82 game seasons and people still consider him an all-time great. And what can you do about it? Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a little hockey history nerd thing here. So 101 years ago in 2019, the Stanley cup was canceled. Um, in what city? Seattle. Uh, Seattle, yeah, yeah. Between Seattle and Montreal. And it was yeah. canceled and, and Joe Hall died. And then now here we are. Things are coming full circle a century mm-hmm. later. True story. Yeah. <laughs> Reasonably cool story, bro. And how was that game, Ken? You were there. <laughs> uh so there's news about the Hall of Fame that came out last week as well. They're deciding to delay the entire class of 2020 to give guys like Jerome McGinley their actual moment, Marion Hossa, et cetera, to, and Kim St. Pierre to just have the proper ceremony. And, and I, I personally agree with it because that's part of the honor is just getting to have that ceremony on TV with all the crowd talking about your exploits, all that kind of stuff. It's not the same if you don't have that moment, so they've delayed it. But I did talk to our, our resident Hall of Fame expert, our senior editor, Brian Costello, and what he explained to me was that because I, I wondered, does that push back a year of, el- of eligibility for everyone? So, you know, we have the Sanines that are going to be up in the next class that would go in in 2022 instead of 2021. But what Brian explained was that it doesn't delay others' eligibility. Uh, others eligibility. So guys that would have, would have been eligible later, now the Sanines will be competing with 2022 guys rather than them being pushed a year later. So there'll be new guys that can be mixed into that class. So my question is for you guys, uh, who do you see as someone that would go in, someone, or, or you can name more than one, who would go in with Sedin's, you know, the Sedin's are pretty much a lock for that class. So who do you have going in, in the class of 2022, off the top of your head right now? Ken, you go first. Well, it's, I think the NHL is catching a break here because there isn't much of a class in 2022 for them to compete with. So um, you've got Henrik Zetterberg, you know, or you've possibly got Henrik Zetterberg, but for me, it would just be wonderful if the Sedins could get in with Roberto Luongo, right? Like that would just be so, that would just be so, um, so, so great. You know, that, that, that sort of meshing of that, that Vancouver, just a celebration of the Vancouver Canucks and, and their, the year they almost won, uh, you know? So I would think that that's a guy um, on the women's side. Here's what I really like. Um, I think that, 2022 would be a perfect opportunity for the for the Hockey Hall of Fame to induct at the same time. I don't know if you can put more than one woman in, but I wish they could. And if they could, Julie Chu and Carolyn Ouellette. So that would be that would be awesome, you know, to see the 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 you know the spouses go in at the same time, and you know the, I think that would just be a wonderful story. So yeah, that would that would kind of be where I'd be at with it, you know. Obviously the Sedins are a slam dunk, and then you've got you know then you've got the old the the ones that we keep talking about, you know, Alex McGillney and you know the the likes of them. So um, uh, yeah, so it'd be an interesting uh, interesting little exercise. Yeah, for me, uh, I like everything Ken said, and I, I would definitely pound the table for Alex McGillney. Uh, you could have an all Vancouver Whoa. Uh, Hall of Fame class, right? Sadine, Luongo, I know, and Caroline Willette would be the other one that makes a lot of sense to me. She did not play for the Canucks, but that's okay. Um, I'm sure she's been to Vancouver. Uh, and, you know, McGillney, obviously, you know, I, I think of him as a Buffalo Sabre. 
ultimately, but still, um, I, I, yeah, I, they, they do kind of catch a break here, but I mean, why not? I mean, McGillney is such a dynamic player and he had such a huge impact on the sport by, you know, via his defection from the, from the Soviet Union and Russia. Um, I, I feel like he should already be in, but this is like the perfect opportunity to, to right that wrong. Yeah, I agree about McGillney. And it's funny, Ken, I had some names on my board here. And I had Luongo, Caroline Ouellette, and Julie Chu as my first three names. <laughs> but I, do, I like the idea, you know, if the Sedins have their special moment together, maybe you save Ouellette and Chu for the next year. And I think there's another woman who you could put in first, and that's Rika Salonen. I think she's, she's finally going to be eligible. She's one of the ones that wouldn't have been eligible, but now will be because she doesn't have to wait that extra year with the class delaying. And Rika Salonen, had a, a remarkable career. She played until she was 46 years old. She was the leading scorer in Nagano, 98, and retired last year. That's how long she played. She stopped playing for 10 years in the middle of her career, came back, became an Olympian for another decade. At 44 years old, she had four goals in the, the 2018 Olympic tournament. So she's been high on a lot of lists of women that should be in the Hall of Fame. So if you wanted just to give Ouellette and Chu more of you know, a separate big moment, you could delay them a year and you could, you could go... Uh, Sedin's and Luongo and Salonen or something like that, or Sedin's and McGillney Salonen, something like that in, in the upcoming class. And Steven says the NHL will probably screw it up and the Sedin bros will be inducted in different years. That would be, that would be hilariously <laughs> hockey for that to happen. <laughs> well, the NHL does, the NHL doesn't choose who goes in the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame selection committee does, but yeah, they, they might do that. <laughs> and then hilarious. not tell anybody by why they did it because there's so much secrecy around that committee. <laughs> and then which twin do you put in first? I'm, I've always been more of a Team Henrik guy, but where, who would you guys put in first if you had to pick one to go in first? Henrik. Yeah, Henrik. He's, he's the better looking one too, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do some listener questions. So this first one, I don't know if I have deja vu. I feel like... I don't know if it was on the podcast or a radio show, but I feel like I was discussing this recently with someone. And maybe it was this guy, Cody Thompson. Cody says, who will be the first captain of the Seattle Kraken? I suspect we might all have the same answer for this one. To me, it's, it's just like in flashing young lights, TJ Oshie. Uh, you know, grew up, in, grew up just north of Seattle. He has a pretty prohibitive contract, $5.75 million through the end of the 24-25 season. So to me, he's a guy you can leverage because you don't have to necessarily use your pick because we saw what Vegas did. They could still also make trades that same night. So you could pick a different capital and then make a deal with the capitals to take Oshie's big contract off their hands. And then you've got your captain. He's a fan favorite. That's where he's from. Like to me, it's just dust off my hands and foregone conclusion. But do you guys agree? Ryan, you go first. Yeah, it's always been TJ Oshie for me. I, I think um, practically since Seattle got named, it just made so much sense. And uh, I almost feel like TJ Oshie knows that he's going to be, <laughs> you know, secretly, I think he knows he's going to be the first captain of the Seattle Kraken. Um, and, and I think it is a great fit. I agree with you. Yeah, I'm right across the board here sorry guys but uh maybe tyler johnson he's a seattle guy too so but who knows what's going to happen with him he's like currently on waivers they don't know whether they're going to buy him out or not you know i think a lot of it depends on how long this season is and and what's going to happen there but uh yeah it's 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 looking an awful lot like it's uh your seattle kraken captain tj Oshie. Mm -hmm. okay next question is from matt s 
does Nolan Patrick come back next year and make an impact? It's crazy. So as of September, I think it was 17 months between games because of his migraine disorder. By the time he comes back, it'll be more than two years. And the most recent reports, so this is again as of September from Chuck Fletcher, uh, they said that Patrick was, you know, he had achieved quality of life again. He was working out, playing golf, that kind of stuff. So he was back to being a normal functioning human being because migraines are someone who's, who gets them from time to time. They're extremely debilitating. So it sounds like he's going to be in game shape to come back. My thing is, I, I believe the hook will be quick because if, if you have a condition bad enough to keep you out two years, it's very possible it gets triggered again as soon as he starts engaging in body contact. And I think if that happens, then he's going to have to start asking really tough questions. And I, I'll be kind of wondering if he may have to retire because if it can't be better after two years, then you know, I don't know how long it's going to take. So I, I do worry. I think we, we will see him in the lineup uh, probably when, when the season starts, but I don't know how long. Uh, Kenny, what do you think? Well, I, to me, I mean, first of all, where is he going to play? Like, where is he going to play? They have Sean Couturier, Morgan Frost, um, uh, Scott Lawton, and Kevin Hayes down the middle. Um, so that right there, that, that moves him over to the wing, even if he's healthy. To me, I think the best place for Nolan Patrick this year would be the American Hockey League. I really do. Like, I mean, if you're going to ease them back in and you're, you know, you're going to do that. I mean, they, they, they have to still, they have to resign him first. Right. Like he's, he's up this year. Right. I believe that they did. I think they, they qualified. Oh, they did resign him. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they've done that. Um, I, I think, I, I think that it, you know, I mean, and this is where not having an American hockey league really hurts because I mean, you look at a lot of those young guys and I, I, I compare it to um, you know, the lockout the year of the lockout, you know, guys like Eric Stahl and Jason Spezza, you know, they were kind of like this, this last year should have been Nolan Patrick's breakout year. He had what 30 and 31 points in his first two years. Not bad, not bad, not great, but not bad. You know, so this, this typically sort of historically for a player's development would have been his breakout year, missed the entire year, hasn't played in 18 months, you know, so, so when the lockout hit in 0405, you know, guys like Jason Spezza and Eric Stahl went to the minors because they were kind of still on that sort of in between decent players, but not really dominant players. They went down, played in the American League for the year, came back after the lockout and the rest is history with those guys. So I think, I think the American Hockey League would be the perfect place to put Nolan Patrick to see, you know, A, if, if he can get up to speed and, and B, to see whether or not he's healthy enough. Hmm. That's a pretty good option. I, I was going to say that, yes, he does play the season, uh, but no, he does not make an impact simply because I think the Flyers bring him along slowly. And yeah, if you have to play him on the wing, then you play him on the wing maybe limited minutes, maybe he doesn't play every night. I mean, you know, if we do have a shortened schedule, maybe that benefits Nolan Patrick because he plays a few games and then maybe there's a week break or however, you know, however it ends up working out, you know, it gives him the opportunity to get his sea legs under him once again, get a feel for the game, take some contact, but the stakes aren't incredibly high because you're not playing every two to three nights. Very good points. It's funny. I guess the the dream league for him to play in would be the OHL right now because nobody contact. Hey, oh, <laughs> not allowed. Uh, next question is from just Sutton. I don't know whether this this guy is named Sutton or whether I just forgot to like paste the first name. But either way, let's just go with Sutton. And Sutton wants to know what will the Red Wings record be this season with all the signings. So last year they were 17, 17 49 and five, two seventy five points percentage, 
lowest points percentage since the 99-2000 Atlanta Thrashers. I've got them this year. I put, I put them down for – so, again, I'm, I'm putting it down for an 82-game projection. It's just easier to picture it this way. So I have them 25, 49, and 7, which is a 348 points percentage. That'd be only 57 points. They'd probably be last overall. Still bad, just not historically bad. And the reason why I do that is, you know, we yes, it's true, Sutton, that uh, Eisman made a bunch of good NHL additions. You know, Troy Stetcher and Thomas Grice and Nemesnikov, Bobby Ryan, all those guys, all good additions. But most, they're all one- or two-year deals. So you, it's a mixture of guys that are clearly going to be flipped at the trade deadline or two-year deals, guys who are at expansion draft bait, for the, for, the uh, for Seattle as well, right? So I, I see those as more stop gaps. And I think what Eisenman's really doing is just creating competition for his young guys. So they have to sort of earn jobs, guys like Joe Valeno and Mort Sider and so on. Uh, so I, I think they're still going to be bad, even with these additions, but just not like, oh my God, this is unbelievable type of bad. Uh, Ryan, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I went points percentage as well, just in case we don't have 80, 82 games. So I'm going to say it's a 375 points percentage. I'm slightly more optimistic than you um, because I believe Thomas Grice can steal you some games and guys like Mark Stahl can at least settle things down. I'm not, I'm not saying at this point in his career that he's a difference maker, but at least he can settle things down. And you look at that defense core now and you say, okay, well, it's, it's pretty much an NHL defense core. It's pretty close to one. Uh, whereas last year, it was like, man, they've got some guys here that should not be here. Um, I think with continued growth from a guy like Anthony Mantha, and of course, yeah, those young guys who can maybe make some contributions, I think they're going to be at least a plucky squad. Um, but the ceiling is still pretty low, which is why I'm thinking a 375 win percentage. Hey, guys, here's how old I am. Okay, here's how old I am. In 1984, we went. I was I was in my my third or third year of university, I think. We went to we went to Detroit to go see the World Series, and so on the on the off night of the World Series, no, they played in the afternoon, and that night the Detroit Red Wings were playing, and it was it was Iserman's first season. They had Daryl Sittler, they had Tiger Williams in the lineup. There was nobody in the building. It was just. Uh, shut up, Stephen. Stephen said this actually happened in 1923. <laughs> and, and there was nobody in the building. It was depressing. It was just, and, and I, I, I kind of think that, like, I look at the, the Red Wings now, and, like, Iserman was the guy to come in and save them, and now Iserman's the guy to come in and save them again. I, I you know, I mean, they don't have the, the long history of losing they had back then, but there's some parallels between those two situations. Um, and I was with you, Ryan. I, I exactly said this, the exact same, for, same save or, um, win percentage you had, 375. Um, yeah, they, I think they're going to be not far and away, but I think they're, I think they're going to be solidly in 31st place and, you know, hopefully they, uh, you know, they get, they get some luck and win the lottery this year. All right. We'll do one more question before the rapid fire game. This one comes from Sean Michael and Sean Michael, not Sean Michaels, not the heartbreak kid. Sean Michael says, who takes a bigger step back? the Boston Bruins or the St. Louis Blues? Well, I think it's a loaded question because I, I wouldn't mind answering neither. I still like both teams. I know there's going to be temptation to say the Bruins are going to start slowly because Marshawn and Bergeron are hurt, but the Bruins just find a way. And I know even their defense core looks pretty weak right now. With Krug is gone and Char has not signed yet. The left side, the decor is extremely thin, but they just find a way under Bruce Cassidy. And I, I'm not, I, I don't know why, but I'm still not worried about them. They won the President's Trophy last year. The Blues, 
maybe I'm a little bit more worried. So I've had to pick one, you know, you lose Pietrangelo, Vladimir Tarasenko, you might not have for the whole season. It's possible his career's in jeopardy. I think with the three surgeries on one shoulder, Jordan Bennington, you know, we got good Bennington and then bad Bennington. So who, which one is the real Bennington after that small sample size? So I would pick the blues as the regression candidate of the two, but I still think the blues and Bruins are both, I would have them both finishing top three in their divisions. Like I still think they're both contenders. That's where I stand. What about you, Mr. Campbell? Well, you're talking about the first, the team that finished first overall and the team that finished second overall. So, I mean, you're talking about two really good teams to start with. Um, I'm with you, Matt. I think they're both, you know, they're both capable of at least in the regular season being, you know, upper tier teams in the league. Um, I, I think I think maybe Boston might take more of a step back. Um, I think because I think they realized that winning the President's Trophy didn't do anything for them this year. And it, and it might almost be an organic step back. Like they might almost take a step back on purpose. And, you know, I mean, they've got those injuries. You know, as you said, they've, they, you know, they've lost Krug on defense. They haven't signed Chara yet. Um, you know, the, the really only meaningful addition, I believe, is Craig Smith which is a pretty good addition, you know, on the right side, you know, you've got a good third line right winger. Um, you know, we still don't know where, what's up with Tuka Rask and where his head is at and, and how he's going to respond to everything that happened after, you know, at the end of the year last year. So I, I would think that the Bruins, um, you know, just by virtue of the fact that they a haven't done a lot in the off season to, improve themselves and they haven't made really any moves they haven't done anything with Jake DeBrusque he's still kind of out there in the you know like sort of dangling in the wind mm -hmm. as far as his future is concerned so I, I'm going to say the Bruins will take a bit of a step back but I don't think it's going to be huge yeah I'm going to say the Blues but I agree it's not going to be a tremendous step back and I say St. Louis simply because they're in the tougher division uh, obviously the Bruins division is very top heavy and they are part of that top um, Craig Smith I think will help also to consider, Andre Kasha did not play very well for the Bruins once he came over at the deadline. And part of it was, you know, there was some uh, quarantine snafus that sort of had him a step behind when it came to entering the bubble. Um, I think he's going to really want to make amends there and, and make more of an impact. And, and that could offset some of the early injuries that they're going to have. Um, I, you know, assuming Rask is there, he is one of the best goaltenders in the NHL still. And I think that, you know, I, I think the Bruins will be, they'll be fine. I think they can sort of muddle their way through the early part of the season and ultimately start building up points as they go. Um, whereas St. Louis there, I think they're just going to have a bit of a tougher schedule. And obviously the loss of Petrangelo is going to be um, pretty significant for them, even though I do believe they still have a very good team. Good points. And it's interesting, Ken, you mentioned uh, Jake Dubrusque as well, because I do wonder, you know, Dubrusque is not signed, Charles not signed, but I wonder if they're sort of just waiting because, you know, they put, they put Marchand and Bergeron or, or, or uh, Pasternak on the offseason LTIR. I wonder if they're trying to make room for one more addition, like Mike Hoffman or something. So they're waiting to sign the other guys until they can just juke around some money. And that's why, because otherwise it's kind of a surprise that they haven't re-signed Dubrusque and Char yet, but we'll see. So before we end the podcast, it's time for the rapid fire game. Ryan, you are the host this week and I'll be answer number one. Ken is answer number two this week. So we are ready when you are. All right. Are you ready though? Are you really ready? I'm not yes. sure. Let's see. Okay. Rapid fire starts now. The saxophone, yay or nay, go. Yay if Lisa Simpson's playing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Big saxophone. Uh, no, nay. The saxophone is 
the nerdy brother of rock and roll, unless it's the guy from Rocket from the Crypt, or if you're a ska fan, which nobody is, so don't worry about it. Next, whose career would you rather have had, Bobby Orr or Nick Lidstrom? Oh, God, that's really hard. Mm. I'm going to say Nick Lidstrom. I think uh, more championships got to play for longer, and uh, so no regrets. And to win seven Norris's when the league was so much bigger, very impressive. So I'll go mm. Lidstrom. All right, I'm going to go Lidstrom, too. He made how many millions of dollars? 80 to $100 million, and Bobby Orr didn't make anywhere near that. Um, also, you know, more, more championships, got to play longer. Um, I, I'm of the I'm of the opinion that Nick Lidstrom is definitely in the conversation as the best defenseman of all time. Um, and you know the last thing is, then you didn't turn out to be a Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> to our knowledge, uh, but yes, I uh, agree. Nick Lidstrom, triple gold club as well, uh, Olympics, World Championship, and Stanley Cup. So he's got that going for him. Um, I agree the longevity is really great. And if you want more on this topic, top 100 defensemen of all time by the Hockey News, special issue on newsstands uh, and virtually whatever right now. So that's good to know. Who is the man that would risk his neck for his brother man? Shaft. You're damn right. We'll just move on because that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you knew that as well. I should have said Shaft. Uh, exactly. Right on. Uh, you didn't see this one coming. Ambush, was he a ranger? We're bringing the game back temporarily. Corey Hirsch, was he a ranger? Oh, he sure was. Without question. Ben? Yes, four games. Yeah, he only played four games for them, but yes, he was a ranger. Yes. Charlie Huddy, was he a ranger? Oh, so many ex-Oilers. I think it's a trap. I'm going to say no. He was a king, not a ranger. Ken? I'm going to say yes. No, Charlie Huddy was not a Ranger, but he was a Buffalo Sabre, which was very strange to me. Final question, more vital disco song, Stayin' Alive by the Bee Gees or Hot Stuff by Donna Summer? I'm going to say in the moment it was Stayin' Alive. Hot Stuff, I think, made a comeback later when being you know, used in various pop culture, that kind of stuff. So I, mm. I, I think it's a better song in a way, but I'm going to say Stayin' Alive in the moment. Okay, Ken. Yeah, staying, staying alive for sure because you know, I mean, because of the fact that you know it was a staple of the movie and everything. So yeah, mm. I'm gonna go with staying alive. The answer is hot stuff because while staying alive was indeed the bigger song and was of course in that famous airplane scene. Wink. See what I did there. <laughs> hot stuff does represent the intersectionality that gave disco some promise, which was of course fleeting and eclipsed by both punk rock and hip hop. But that is neither here nor there. Shout out to Donna Summer. Rapid Fire's done. You had, you had, the, you had the benefit of, of, of having the que knowing the question beforehand on that one. I like well, yes, of course. <laughs> you, went, you went full Alice Cooper and Wayne's World there with the Milwaukee monologue. Just like ah. firing off facts. I really, I liked it. Excellent. Good stuff. Good finish to the podcast. And everyone, uh, hopefully, <laughs> whatever happens, election day, hopefully you can listen to this either, you know, for therapeutic reasons for celebratory reasons, but whatever, or listen to it today before the election is happening and that can be your distraction. Either way, hope you enjoyed and we'll be back next week.